guys. Welcome back to our teaching in the book of Matthew. Now, the last time we were here, we were wrapping up that section in chapters 24 and 25, which were basically prophetic. That is the teaching of Jesus concerning end time, specifically about the second advent, that is the physical return of Jesus to set up the kingdom on the earth. We sometimes refer to that as the millennial kingdom and another event, a secret event that Jesus made us aware of coming from 24 and 36, that period day construction to the witch guys. You know, we can't go back into all of that material, but nevertheless, his concern was primarily the rapture of the church. Now, specifically also the last time we were here, we were in chapter 25. And so let's just take a brief overlook at that. Again, the idea or the emphasis is concerning with the rapture, the rapture of the church, which was a time that no one knew the exact day or the hour, not even Jesus himself, to the which he would return to take the church in the rapture, that is the catching up in the air. But nevertheless, since we do not know that particular time, he emphasized, now I'm back in chapter 25, he emphasized the need to be ready. And this was a constant emphasis of Jesus with respect to this point. Why? Once again, you don't know the hour, so therefore you should be ready. So he gave the parable of the 10 virgins to continue to emphasize events that would take place thereafter, that is after the church has been raptured, he gave another parable concerning talents, which emphasized the need to be faithful. That is, while our, while our Lord is away in heaven, we need to be useful. We need to work and use the things that God has put in our disposal, whether they are gifts, resources, time, our lives as a whole, whatever it might be, we need to be faithful in using that for the service of the kingdom. Why? For when Jesus comes back, he will call us before him to give an account of those things that he had placed in our trust. And if we have been faithful, he will give us a reward. If we have not been faithful, first of all, if you are not faithful, uh, that is saved, you will not be caught up in the rapture in the first place. But nevertheless, the primary point that Jesus was simply trying to make in the second parable of the, of the talents that he gave was simply the need to be faithful. So in the parable of the virgins, readiness. In the parable of the talents, faithfulness. And then he continued on at the end of chapter 25 to talk about what he will do when he returns to set up the kingdom. And one of the first things that he will do is he will bring the Gentile nations into judgment for their treatment of the Jewish people during the worst times of their history, which will be the tribulation era, namely or specifically, y'all notice how I like to use that a lot. <laughs> I don't even know why myself, but namely or specifically the great tribulation. And so therefore to be in the great tribulation, and we talked about all of that extensively from Revelation chapter 12 and on and on and on, even bringing that together with Revelation chapter 13, the persecution of the Jewish people that will happen when the Antichrist breaks the peace treaty. But nevertheless, 
So the Gentile nations would be gathered before the Lord and there, uh, and when he talks about their being gathered to the right and to the left, the sheep on the right, the good on to the left, the saved will be on the right. The unsaved will be on the left. And he basically says this as a measure of how they treated the Jewish people because they are not being saved allowed to enter into the kingdom. They are not saved by what they did treating the Jewish people nice or whatever. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you gave me clothes. When I was sick, I was in prison, blah, 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 tweet, tweet, tweet. They're not saved because of what they did, but what they did was the evidence that they were saved. And so therefore they were allowed into the kingdom, not on the basis of works because nobody is ever saved according to what they do, but what you do does speak about whether or not you are truly saved. And this is the whole point of James in his epistles, faith without works is dead. So therefore, showing works is the proof that you have genuinely, truly been saved. But nevertheless, so what he shows is those Gentiles who are saved, this salvation, they demonstrated by how they treated the Jewish people during the tribulation. Those Gentiles would be allowed into the kingdom, but those unsaved Gentiles, goats on the left, will be immediately executed and sent to hell to suffer eternal punishment. And there he concludes his prophetic words about what will be taking place at the end of the age. And this, and thus he answers the question in totality, chapters 24 and 25. When will these things be? One, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Question number two. Okay. Now, with all of that being said, it is now time for us to move because we know that we are in the final Passover season, which will be the time in which Jesus himself will be crucified. And of course, raised from the dead three, three days later. So now is the time for those things. So as we move into chapter 26, if you'll notice chapter 26 is very long. So what we're going to do is this. We're going to split this teaching up into two separate videos. Now, the things that are involved in 26 are not difficult to understand or to comprehend, although there is a need to highlight specific events and specific things that they are doing in chapter 26, especially like in the observance of the Passover, which I won't get into great detail but I will highlight certain nuances that is taking place in the Passover because when the Jews celebrated the Passover, they celebrated it a specific way. This is sometimes referred to as the Passover or the Haggadah or the Passover Cedar, okay, which is basically dealing with the rules of the Passover, the order of the Passover, how the Passover is celebrated for first century Jews, okay? Which is primarily how uh, observant Jews celebrate the Passover even to this day. So I'll bring in certain issues or certain highlights concerning how they celebrated that. But nevertheless, it is not with great difficulty that we'll deal with these things. Uh, uh, that is stuff hard to understand. But it is just simply 
lengthy. Okay, so let me just cut it all right there. Get into chapter 26 as we move into the occasion where Jesus prepares to celebrate this Passover and ultimately 26, 27, and 28. One section will be uh, betrayed by Judas, handed over to the chief priests, handed over to the Gentile rulers, scourged and crucified, third day rise from the dead, and then finally meet his disciples in Galilee, and therefore he ascends back into heaven, giving them the great commission. And this is the final section, chapters 26, 27, and 28. So let's get started. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Okay, so what we hear, see here is Jesus once again, because we notice ever since Peter's great confession, Jesus taught his disciples that he was ultimately to go into Jerusalem and there he would be mistreated, crucified, and rise from the dead. He, he reminds them at this occasion that it would be at this Passover celebration that he would be crucified. Because what does he say? When he finished the prophetic teachings, you know, remember they were coming from Jerusalem and then they stopped at Mount of Olives and Jesus gave that Mount Olivet teaching concerning the end times, chapters 24 and 25. That's when he reminded them that after two days is the Passover, that is the celebration of the Passover. And what you have to remember is, and I don't want to spend a lot of time in this, but remember now, first the Passover, according to the Jewish calendar, is the 14th of Nisan. Immediately after the Passover is a seven-day uh, feast called the Unleavened Bread, in which they did a celebration. You go back and check out that in Exodus chapter 12, as well as you can see it in Leviticus chapter 23, concerning the celebration of Passover one day, the, the celebration of Unleavened Bread, seven days. But when we come into the time of Jesus, they basically will use the name Passover or unleavened bread interchangeably. And basically they celebrated it as one observance. So if you see it called Passover or unleavened bread, the idea is because they were so closely celebrated, Passover being the 14th, then the unleavened bread being the 15th and seven days, they would just simply use the name Passover or unleavened bread interchangeably to celebrate both of them together. But here, the idea is Jesus speaking of the Passover, which will be in two days. And he is reminding his disciples that it is there that he will be crucified. And of course we know raised from the dead, but crucifixion. Then we see Matthew talking about how the chief priests had gathered together under Caiaphas and it was, remember, it was under Annas, who was the father, that is, I'm sorry, not so much as the father, but the father-in-law of Caiaphas. 
and sometimes it would be mentioned as Caiaphas because what? Caiaphas was the legitimate high priest. Annas, Annas, I'm sorry, Annas was the previous high priest, but nevertheless, he was recognized as the high priest by the people because he was of greater renown by the people. So therefore, you will see it sometimes called Annas or sometimes called Caiaphas, although it was Caiaphas who was the legitimate high priest appointed by the Romans at this particular time. Nevertheless, so we see where the priests had gathered together with the mindset to kill Jesus uh, at this particular time. They wanted to take him by stealth. And what it simply means is that Jesus was recognized and he was appreciated by the common people. And so therefore the common people would cause a riot in Jerusalem at this time. And I don't want to get into all of the politics, but what you have to understand is this. During the Passover season, Jews, Jerusalem, would swell to a large number of people at this time because Jews would be coming from all over the world to celebrate the Passover. Many of them were now being introduced to Jesus, some of them believing, many of them not. But nevertheless, he still had the respect of a great number of people. One of the primary reasons that the Sadducees were put in power by the Romans, and it was the Sadducees who were of the caste of the priests and of from whom the chief priests came from. One of the reasons why the Sadducees, namely the chief priests, were put in charge uh, uh, of the priesthood was to keep control of the people. So in Jerusalem, at this particular time of the Passover, with so many people, in Jeru Jews in Jerusalem at this particular time, there was always the idea of nationalism. That is, many Jews would be wanting to break the hold, break the hold of the Romans over the Jewish people. So you have to be careful during that time. And a large number of Jews being present, you have to be careful during that time. And Jesus being thought of as some great figure by the Jewish people. So you have to be really careful how you deal with Jesus. You cannot simply go and arrest him. Why? This could lead to a riot at this time. So what are the chief priests thinking to do? They want to, uh, they want to arrest Jesus and they want to have Jesus put to death. But they are afraid of the people. What would happen if they arrest Jesus and all the people see it? It would cause a riot. The Romans would come and send soldiers and probably remove those chief priests from their place. And the Romans would come and, and bring about harsh judgment upon the Jewish people. So they're afraid of this, okay? So they want to get rid of Jesus, kill Jesus, but they need to find a way to do this outside of the people so it doesn't cause a riot. And that's how we're going to see Judas become key to these events. But nevertheless, so they want to take him and have him killed, so they want to do it stealthily, but they don't want to do it during the festival time. That's important to remember as well as we're going to see during the final Passover with Jesus and disciples. They, didn't, they did not plan 
They did not plan to kill Jesus during the Passover season, even though they actually killed Jesus at the Passover season. Again, why? A lot of people are there. Jesus is a popular figure. It would cause a riot. But even though they didn't plan to kill Jesus during the Passover season, it was the plan of God that Jesus should be put to death during the Passover season. Why? He is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Exodus chapter 12. The lamb, the Passover lamb who shed blood brings about salvation and redemption. But nevertheless, so let's go on so we don't make this longer than need be. Okay, so that's the mindset. Jesus, and it brings about that whole idea of Jesus knowing that his time had come and Matthew showing us what? And the, and the religious leaders are participating quite avidly to make that time come. They had every intent to kill Jesus. It was only not during the Passover season. That was their plan, which did not quite work out the way they had anticipated. Okay, let's go a little further. Verse six. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Okay, now let me say this. Since we are studying the gospel of Matthew, I am not going to bring in everything concerning all of these events because many of these things are spoken of in the other gospels, that is Mark, Luke, John. I am only concerned with Matthew's gospel. However, I will from time to time bring in other uh, things concerning the other gospels to give us more information to make to, to clarify what Matthew is talking about here. For example, here, the woman who is anointing Jesus's feet is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And this we learn from the other gospels of Mark, okay? Gospel, gospels of Jesus. And we find that in I believe it's in Mark as well as in John. But the point is, this is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who is anointing Jesus with this particular oil. Now, it is interesting to understand all of the things that is going on behind the scene. That is, this particular oil. Why does Mary have this oil? Where does she buy this oil? What is the purpose of this oil? It was a very common thing for unmarried women at this particular time to save up to buy oil to be used for themselves on their wedding night. 
And so therefore, these women would save up for a long time to buy very expensive oil that they would use on a one-time occasion to anoint themselves on the night of their wedding. And this is what Mary has done. She has saved up money for this alabaster oil to be used for her wedding night. But she has determined that Jesus is more valuable than the oil she would use for herself on the wedding night. So instead of her using the oil for herself, she decides to use this very expensive oil for Jesus to anoint his body. No doubt she is moved by a force she herself is not aware of. Jesus makes us aware that she is anointing him in preparation for her burial. And he rebukes his disciples because they have a problem with that. And notice how the disciples knew and understood that this oil was very expensive. Also too, let me do a little interjection here also because Matthew simply says the disciples uh, rebuked the woman for this use of oil. Now, it is John in the Gospel of John, it lets us, and this is very key to understand it as well, that it is actually Judas who leads the objection. That is, the same Judas who was like the treasurer, he kept, he kept the money, and notice what John said, from time to time, he would take out the money for his own personal uses. So Judas was like the treasurer, amongst the apostles, amongst the disciples. And so Judas was the one who led this objection against Mary uh, spending such, uh, uh, using the oil, which cost a lot of money, simply to anoint Jesus's body and saying that it could have been used for the poor. And as Jesus reprimanded them, it was not so much a care that Judas had for the poor because Judas was a thief and Judas wanted to use the money, not for the poor, but for himself. But nevertheless, it is a beautiful thing how Matthew doesn't bring that, bring out Judas, but Matthew includes the rest of the disciples as well. Because what? Even though Judas was the ring leader to bring out the objection, the other disciples went along with it. But nevertheless, so let's get back to the text. So now we understand what this oil was that Mary used. It was an oil that she was saving, had been saved, saved a lot of money for a long time to be used on her wedding night. And we see how she now values Jesus. And for the Jewish woman, to Jewish virgin woman, to use this oil, one time occasion, it showed how special the oil was. What this indicated concerning Mary and Jesus, it showed how she thought Jesus was more precious even than this, her wedding night. First time she would have with her husband. This was showing how Jesus for Mary was of a great value. But nevertheless, so we see the occasion, we see the objection of the disciples and especially as I brought out for you guys, the objection of Judas over the issue of money. 
And this also helps us to understand what led Judas, what was also influencing Judas, his greed and his desire for money. We can tie these two events into Judas's actions thereafter, but I'm not going to get into that yet because we're not there yet. But I want you to see how this event, this objection, how it was a waste of money with Judas being the primary uh, spokesman of this thing, how this was an influencer to Judas's actions later on when he goes to the religious leaders, but not there yet. But what Jesus does say is when he reprimands the disciples, she's preparing his body to be burial. Notice the whole theme is the upcoming crucifixion of Jesus. So what is she doing? She is preparing his body for that crucifixion and burial. And then once again, Jesus says that what she is doing is going to be a memorial. It will be spoken of wherever this gospel is preached. What this woman has done will forever be spoken of just like I just did. I just obeyed. I just fulfilled the words of Jesus and spoke of what Mary did for him in anointing his body. That memorial spoken of, it is a wonderful plus for Mary. Okay, now let's continue. 14, and remember the connection about objecting to the amount of money that was spent because it was a weight. Isn't it a sad thing though, that how they didn't value their Messiah, how they did not value their Lord. They didn't think Jesus was worth that. Jesus is worth that and everything in this created universe. They're, now at the time, they're just simply being led by the flesh. But no, and you can and you can kind of see the pain in Matthew as he recalls these particular events. But I can guarantee you, after all of these events had unfolded, and after they had been filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, they saw the true value of their Lord. He was worth more than all the silver and gold in the world, all the most precious ointment that the world had. But at this time, they're simply led of the flesh. Even though Matthew will not get into it, we'll even find out later on, even during this season when Jesus is getting ready to be crucified at the final Passover, they'll still be in the flesh arguing about who is the greatest. But I'm not going to get into that. Matthew didn't bring that part up. I just wanted to bring that to you guys. They in the flesh were not even able to truly value their Lord. But Let's again tie on the event. Judas being the chief spokesman upset about it and how John brought it out, how Judas was the treasurer and how he from time to time would steal what was in the bag. That is when people would give donations and money to the disciples, Judas was the treasurer over and keeping the money and he would steal out of that bag from time to time. And so therefore he's upset because the woman didn't take this money and convert the alabaster oil into money, give it to Judas and Judas would have access to all of that money. That's what he's upset about, not having this money that he can steal, which wonderfully leads us into the next section, Judas's betrayal of Jesus 
For what? For money. For the very money that he wished he had from the alabaster. Wonderful. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, let's just stop and deal with that. Notice the connection from the desire of money. Now, I believe it was Luke that says Satan entered into Jesus, entered into Judas at this time. <laughs> Judas, 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 Satan. Entered. And this was the first time that Satan himself entered into a man and entered into Judas. During this whole event of the betrayal of Jesus, here, now, Satan enters into Judas for the first time, and then in the second time, at the Passover table, Satan will enter into Judas when Jesus tells him that what you do, do quickly. But we're not going to get into all of that. And now do you understand why you have to bring in all of the Gospels to get a full picture of everything that took place at this event? But we're not doing that once again, but let's just go on. So Judas goes to the chief priest and he asks them, he, he, he asked them to give him a bribe to betray Jesus. What would you give us to betray him? And me to betray him. And they agreed to give Judas 30 pieces of silver. Now, I did make a video about what's unique about the 30 pieces of silver. And you guys should go and check that out about what was important or what it signified in the betrayal of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So I just simply tell you in a nutshell, in the book of Exodus, it speaks that if a male or female slave is gored to death, is killed by an animal, that the owner of the uh, the owner of the animal that killed the slave should give the owner of the slave 30 pieces of silver. So therefore, 30 pieces of silver is the value of a slave. Then we find out in the book of Zechariah, I think it's chapter 13 in Zechariah, if I'm not sure. But in the book of Zechariah, as Zechariah is portrayed as the shepherd, the prophetic shepherd unto the nation of Israel. And he asks the people, the leaders of Israel, what do they think that his services are worth? And they give unto him, the shepherd of Israel, 30 pieces of silver. Okay, so 30 pieces of silver or the number 30 came to represent something that was detestable. So when you wanted to speak of something in a very negative way, you would give 30 pieces of silver. You want to value it in a negative way. So to give Judas 30 pieces of silver for Jesus, we understand they valued him less than the value of the Messiah was valued at the price of a slave. We also understand him fulfilling that in Zechariah again, I think chapter 13, fulfilling that the shepherd of Israel being valued as a slave. And then finally, we see it being given in a detestable. So to give Judas 30 pieces of silver seemed was suggesting was no, I'm sorry, outright saying about Jesus, we consider him to be less than nothing because to give them 30 pieces of silver was to be a detestable number, a detestable number to say we count him 
less than nothing. And that's why they paid 30 pieces of silver. But Judas went there for the money. And once again, we're just simply tying that on. The motif of Judas, the desire that we saw in Judas for money when he railed at Mary because she anointed Jesus with the expensive oil and then moving him for with that same desire in heart to go to the chief priest because he still had this desire for money. Okay, now let's continue. Now on the first day, verse number 17, first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, what do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Now, there are a lot of things that were done, done in order to prepare for the Passover, namely about the getting the lamb, taking the lamb unto the temple, taking it before the priest. The priest had to examine the lamb. If the lamb was uh, uh, passed the test, that is without spot and blemish, then that lamb would be taken, sacrificed. The blood would be taken from the lamb, poured in a basin and poured on the on the coals of the altar of burnt offering. All of these things, part of the meat of the lamb will be uh, given for the priest and other parts would be taken home and that part would be taken home would be celebrated with the Passover with Jesus and the disciples. That's just one part of the preparation, but that was not mentioned. That's not mentioned here. But also too, we see he's talking about a certain man in preparation for that. It's in another gospel. I think it's in Luke that Jesus talked about a man carrying a pitcher of water. The pitcher of water be carried on the head. Normally, and, and this the way they would identify this man so quickly is water was normally carried by women and it would be carried by the women on top of the head. So for a man to do this would be very unusual. So they were able to quickly identify this particular man. When they went into the city and they saw a man carrying a pitcher of water on his head, okay, clearly that's who Jesus is talking about. And when Jesus says, tell the man that it's time for me to prepare uh, the Passover to eat with my disciples, then obviously this man was a believer in Jesus as the Messiah. So there was a supernatural indicator of this believer by identifying this man as having a pitcher of water on the head. The disciples would then go do those things that I told you with the lamb and bring that meat back and there in the upper room. And it was very possible that this man was John Mark where they celebrated in the upper room again, we see in the book of Acts, but I'm not gonna get into all of that. But there, it had to be a large room where Jesus would have a table, table spread out, probably two tables put together, two large tables put together, and pillows on the floor. They didn't have chairs. They would have pillows on the floor with everybody reclining to the left. And there, they would have the Passover meal. And in the Passover meal, they would have certain things, certain observations going on. This is what is called the Haggadah or the Passover cedar, the rules or order of the Passover, which they would have four cups that they would drink 
and there will be four questions asked, and then they will be eating of, of, of certain things that they will be eating during the Passover meal. And these things, all of this is not brought out in the gospel, but certain ones of them will be brought out in the gospel, okay? But nevertheless, this is the Passover uh, meal that was commonly celebrated by first century Jews. Okay, so now that Jesus told them to get the room, prepare for the Passover, it moves us into, in Matthew's account, into the events of the Passover, okay? Verse number 20. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. As they were eating, he said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And he answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The son of man is, go is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, surely it is not I, rabbi. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Okay, so now we are in the Passover, all right? And as I said, all of the elements that are involved in the Passover, the different things that they would do at the Passover celebration, Matthew doesn't bring it out. Where none of them brings it out, okay? And the Jews, of course, they would know how they would observe the Passover. But Jesus is now in that room with his disciples. All 12 of them are present. Namely, Judas is present amongst them. That's what we need to see. So as he was eating, he says one of them would betray him. Jesus made them aware that he would be betrayed by one of them. So they, they all became deeply upset by what Jesus said. They couldn't imagine that one of the 12 would actually betray Jesus, their Messiah. So they began to ask Jesus one by one, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Now, once again, let's dip into some of the other gospels, okay? Where it was Peter who spoke to John, who was leaning on the breast of Jesus and asked John to ask Jesus, who is the one who will betray him? And so John asked Jesus, who is it going to betray him? So now let me take you into the Passover. So during the Passover, they would have this special little concoction of like horseradish and other things that are involved. They have a piece of bread, put it on a piece of bread, this special made little mixture, and then put another piece of bread on it. And the one who was officiating over the Passover meal, which would literally be the, the, the master of the house, but here it would be Jesus. He would make this little concoction, the bread with the little mixture. And this mixture and the bread and the concoction would symbolize how Israel made bricks in Egypt, okay? And the difficulty that, that involved. This was the symbolization of that. So Jesus would make it the bread, and give it to all of them. That would be his primary responsibility. 
So when they asked Jesus about who would betray him, John, Peter told John to ask him, Jesus made that particular little bread and the little mixture with the other piece of bread on top. And Jesus said, the one that I give it to, that's the one that will betray him. And so Jesus, after making this little um, sandwich, so to speak, gave the sandwich to Judas. And Judas said, Lord, it's not I, it's not me, is it? Surely it's not me. And Jesus said, you yourself have said it. So Jesus in the Greek is emphatic. It is as you say, you yourself have said it. Okay. And so here Jesus indicates that it is Judas is the one who will betray him. Now, although Matthew does not mention it, it is here that Jesus says unto Judas, that which you do, do quickly. That which you must do, do quickly. Now, here's what I want you to see. Jesus threw a monkey wrench in the plan. What? Remember, let's go back to the beginning of this chapter. The chief priests were trying to find a way to kill Jesus. They wanted to kill him, but they decided not to do it in the feast time. Why? They didn't want to cause a riot amongst the people. You got it? So they didn't want to do it during the Passover season. But it is here at the Passover meeting when Jesus says to Judas that you're going to betray me. So therefore, that which you must do, go and do quickly. Jesus threw a monkey wrench in the plan of Judas and the religious leaders because they were not intending to get Jesus during the feast time. But now they have to. Why? Because Jesus has tripped. He has tripped the trap. And he is now telling Judas, spring the trap now. Betray me now because you have already made plans to do it. So go ahead and do it right now. Do it quickly. Now, even though Judas understood what Jesus was talking about, the other disciples did not understand what Jesus was talking about because they thought they were, he, that Jesus was telling Judas to go buy something in preparation for the feast or something related to the feast. They had no idea that Jesus was literally telling Judas to go and get the chief priests and, and the, 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 the soldiers and all of that, which is to come later, and literally betray Jesus to them. They had no idea. But Jesus knew and Judas know. So the point here that's very uh, uh, important for us to see is Jesus sprang the trap early. They did not want to get Jesus doing the Passover, but Jesus sprang the trap so that Judas had to go and get him and betray Jesus during the Passover. And why all of this? Why all of this? It was the divine timetable. It was God's plan that Jesus should be the Passover lamb. He had to die at this time to fulfill the scripture. Okay, so it's a beautiful thing in all of that. All right, let's see how much farther we can go in this. We're going to try to split it just about in half, just about. So now as we have gone uh, uh, with Judas's being indicated as one who will betray Jesus, what we have to see is 
from this point forward in the continued observance of the Passover, Judas is not amongst them. Only the saved disciples are here with Jesus from this point. Because why? That deceiver and that crook is now gone. So the rest of what Jesus is doing, even though Matthew does not record all of these things, and again, it wouldn't even be uh, uh, right for me to get into all of those details about the washing of the feet and things of that nature. But Judas is gone. Only the saved disciples slash apostles are here forth present with Jesus to celebrate the remainder of the Passover. And we'll understand that because we'll see certain things done uh, that Judas will not be a part of. All right, enough said about that. Let's simply move into it. 26, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Okay, let's just simply stop there. All right, so now we are still in the Passover cedar. We're celebrating the Passover. And Jesus now assigns new meaning to certain elements of the Passover dinner. The first thing that we see is the assigning of the piece of bread. When he said, as they were eating, he took some bread and blessed it. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. He blessed the bread and he took it and said, and he gave it to the disciples and said, this is my body. This is what is referred to in the Passover cedar as the Afakomen. They had uh, it, it wrapped up three pieces of bread, three pieces of bread. During a certain part of the ceremony, the Alpha Komen, they would take out the second bread, second bread, piece of bread, second matzah, matzah, and they would break it and then hide it. Later on, they would go back and retrieve the bread and introduce it back into the ceremony. It was this piece of bread, the second piece of bread, and we all understand the spiritual significance as the, the three pieces of bread represented God, the triune God, and the second, that middle piece represented the second person of the Trinity, that is Jesus, for it was him who was taken, and notice, take, eat, this is my body. It was Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who was made flesh and crucified and his death brought redemption. But anyway, so this represents Jesus. So he took that Alpha Komen, that second piece of bread and gave it uh, a new meaning, his body. And something that was unique about the bread that they used, there were three characteristics that the matzah, that the bread had to have. 
The bread had to be unleavened, that is, without yeast. The bread had to have holes in it. And this, okay, the bread had to be unleavened. It had to, it would have holes in it and the bread would be striped. It would be striped. All of this, we can understand the spiritual significance as it points to Jesus. Unleavened, that is, without sin, because we understand leaven is a spiritual indicator, spiritual type for sin. Jesus, he said, remember he said, take, eat, this is my body. Jesus is unleavened. He is without sin. The bread had to have stripe. What did Isaiah 53 says? He was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities. The stripes that the Roman soldiers put on Jesus when they scourged him. And then the bread would have what? Holes in it. They would poke holes in the bread. The holes indicated him whom they pierced, Zechariah, as well as Jesus on the cross. They pierced him. So this was a perfect symbolism of Jesus when he broke that matzah, that middle piece, and said, this is my body. Okay? Then it talked about the cup. Now, this was the third cup. I think this is called the cup of redemption. There were four different cups that they would drink of. And it only mentions two of them, the first cup and the third cup. This is the third cup, the cup of redemption. Why? This drink of it, Jesus says, it symbolizes now my blood because it is by the blood of our Lord, the blood of the Messiah that brings about salvation for the people of God. Jesus's death, his shedding of his blood paid the price so that we can truly be redeemed. He is truly the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we see now that bread, that um, middle piece of bread, matzah, that Jesus brought out, the afakomen, and we see the third cup, the cup of redemption, that Jesus gave a new meaning. The bread, his body, the cup, the blood of the new covenant that Jesus has now given through his blood. He makes with God's people through his shed blood. And then Jesus spoke that he had truly desired to celebrate this Passover with them and to drink of the wine with them. But he would not drink of that wine. Why? Because he will become the Passover. He won't drink of it until the setting up of the kingdom, his kingdom, that is his second advent. When he returns, then there will be a celebration when he would drink it with his disciple once again. Okay. And after that, he sung a hymn. These are from, what is it? Psalm 115 to Psalm 18. These were the Psalms that were sung during the Passover celebration. Okay. So he sung, they hymned a hymn and then he went out into the Mount of Olives. All right. Now let's go a little bit further. Verse number 31. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But, I, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, 
even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Okay, I don't wanna put a lot of time into this, but what we have as they are now going into the Mount of Olives after singing the hymn, Jesus uh, makes a revelation to them. Speaking of Zechariah chapter 13, when he says they will all fall away on account of him that night because Jesus knows it would be that night that Judas will return back with those soldiers. Remember what he said at the final at the Passover table, that what you must, you have to do, go and do that quickly. He knew that it would be that night he would be betrayed. Okay. So he says that it would be during this time of his betrayal. They don't understand what's really going on, but he lets them know they are going to fall away from him. They are going to stumble greatly on account of him. And he quotes the scripture. I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Zechariah 13. And so Peter, but he says again, here's something I want to say. I don't want to put a lot of time in it, but after I have been raised. So when he says I'll strike down the shepherd and the stumbling, Jesus is speaking inclusively. That is not only of that night when Jesus will be betrayed, but all the things that Jesus will go through that whole night up until the morning time, that whole night up until the morning time, when Jesus will end up being betrayed and put on the cross and ultimately after three days and three nights in the grave, resurrected from the dead. So the whole event, Jesus speaking of holistically, that whole event, that's what makes them stumble. And so he says, and but after all of these things take place, I'll be raised from the dead and I will meet you in Galilee. Just remember this, saints, concerning that. Even though Jesus keeps telling them, remember, they are in Jerusalem, the south. They are in where? Jerusalem, the south. Galilee is back home in the north. And it takes about what? About three days journey. So Jesus is letting them know to meet him in Galilee. Even though he would tell them this over and over again, they just won't get it. And they will not go to Galilee until Jesus literally said, listen, go to Galilee after he rises from the dead. They, man, they are just dense and they won't get the whole scenario dealing with the resurrection of the dead. It becomes an unbelievable situation to the point they never go to Galilee until Jesus literally rises from the dead and tell them for the umpteenth time, go to Galilee. But my point here is, notice even now he tells them, I'll meet you in Galilee when I rise from the dead. But that's the whole thing. They just can't seem to get that through their head and they don't even go to Galilee. <laughs> but okay, enough of that. So he tells them they'll fall away. He tells them he's going to resurrect from the dead and meet them in Galilee. 
But Peter is taken aback from the idea of him actually uh, uh, denying his Lord, that is falling away from the Lord, departing from his Lord. And Peter said to him, notice, in an arrogant boast, because that's really what it turns out to be. Though all the rest of them may fall away, I will never fall away. So Peter seemed to think that he's stronger than the rest, that he is more stable than the rest of them. And boy, does Jesus let all the air out of his bubble. And so Jesus says, so you really think that you're stronger? You really think that you are going to stand when the rest of them fall? And then Jesus tells him, before the rooster crows, you will three times deny you have ever known me, Peter. So that's really saying something. You will, And we know what Peter will do, but we're not going to get into that yet. So Jesus tells Peter, not only will you fall, but you will ultimately deny three times even knowing me. And even though it's not here, included here. But Jesus will later tell him, Peter, you just don't understand. Satan has gone to heaven and he has asked permission from God. Like we see in the book of Job chapters one and two, he has asked permission from God to sift you like wheat. And guess what? God has given him permission and Peter, you will fall greatly. Greatly will be your fall. And we will see that as later on in Peter's denial of Jesus. But again, we cannot go into all of these elements. The point that Jesus is simply trying to bring is the denial of Peter and what? The fall of the disciples. When the time comes for them to stand by Jesus, they all will run. Sad, sad. And lest any of us think greatly about ourselves, we would have done the same thing. Why? What did the scripture say? What did the scripture say? Didn't the scripture say, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter? I don't care if you were out there. I don't care if I was out there. I would have done the same thing. First of all, scripture can never be broken. If scripture says we'll fall away, we'll fall away. And second of all, we are no better than they are. None in the, no better, no better. Okay, enough of that because I don't want to get into preaching. But Peter not only said it, all the rest of the disciples said it. All right, let's see if we can cover our final section before we close out. Then Jesus came, came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began, he began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me yet, not as I will, but as you will. 
And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went again a second time and prayed saying, my father, if this cup, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came, found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy and he left them again. And he went away, prayed a third time saying, same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand and the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Okay, I love this section. I'm gonna do my best not to preach because this has been a very confusing section. So I'm not gonna go fast, but this is the final section. Listen up closely guys, so that you don't make the most common error that people make when trying to interpret what is going on with Jesus at this time, okay? What's happening? So Jesus goes to a place in the garden, a, a place where there are a bunch of olive trees in the garden, in, in on Mount Olives, in Mount Olives, a place where there are a lot of olive trees called Gethsemane. And I like that too. Such a wonderful place. Gethsemane means olive press because there we can see our Lord being spiritually pressed at the time. But nevertheless, Gethsemane, olive press bunch of olive trees. There he goes there. He goes and he sits there and he tells them, sit there and pray. He takes with them Peter, James, and John. He takes witnesses with him. He takes those who can pray along with him. Those who can be with him during some of his greatest times of testing. Some of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee. And Jesus, after he goes to this particular place, he separates from them about the distance that you can throw a stone. And there he begins to pray. What is important is to understand what is going on with Jesus at this present time, at this present time. And what is Jesus talking about in his prayer to God. So let's get into it. So he goes and he says, no, verse number 37. He says, he, it says he began to be grieved and distressed. What you need to understand is, is these verbs are in the present tense. Jesus is right now as he comes into the garden. Imagine it. Let me take you there. Something strikes Jesus and it strikes him to the point that he begins to be deeply grieved and deeply depressed. This is not the looking forward to the cross. This is an event that is taking place, present tense, right now. So, and what you always have to remember is this, concerning the cross, 
Jesus never hesitated towards going to the cross. Jesus always knew that he was going to the cross. Jesus always was prepared to go to the cross. Jesus never wavered. He never wavered to go to the cross. But there is something that is taking place right here in the garden, here in the garden that strikes Jesus. It catches him by surprise. And Jesus is struck when it happens to him. And that's why he said he began to be greed, very grieved and very depressed. It is not the cross that is grieving Jesus. It is something else. I'll tell you what it is. Okay. But let me just go on. So he says, my soul, here's our key. My soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Just watch over me. Pray with me. So what is the issue? So let me tell you what's going on. My soul at the cross, it is the body that's going to be killed and crucified. But here Jesus says what? My soul is right here now being deeply stressed, grieved, depressed because something is taking place right now, right now with my soul. Something that is catching me unawares. Something that I'm not prepared for. Something that I did not anticipate would happen. Why? I knew I would die. I kept telling you guys over and over and over, I was going to die. I told you I was going to Jerusalem. I was going to be betrayed. I told you about the chief priest. I told you about the Gentile. I told you I'll be crucified. I told you I would be resurrected from the dead. I told you all of these things. None of those things would catch Jesus by surprise. But when he entered the garden, something caught him by surprise. And notice he said it grieved not his body that would be crucified, but his soul. Answer. Now, let me give you the answer. Because here is where some have misinterpreted that when Jesus began to pray unto God, if it is possible, take this cup. Remember, the cup that he is talking about is not a future cup. The future cup would be death on the cross. Jesus says, when he entered into the garden, right then something came over him and began to grieve him. Right then something came over him and began to depress him. My soul is not my body. My soul is grievously depressed. Okay. When he prayed that this cup, it was the present cup. What present cup? The thing that was on him right there in the garden, not the crucifixion that he would, he would face shortly thereafter, but that present tense cup that was on him. What is the point that I'm stressing here? Jesus never, ever prayed to escape the cross. He always knew he would go. He talked about it a million times. He was ready to go to the cross from day one. He was ready. 
It was never the cross that Jesus asked the Father to save him from. It was that present vexation of his soul, not his body, not his what? Body on the cross, but his soul that was deeply depressed in the garden at that time. So here is the answer to all of that hooping. What in the world was going on that caught Jesus by surprise? Remember, coming as a man, Jesus did not exercise divine knowledge in all things. He did not act as God to know all things. Remember, we talked about this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, that he didn't even know the coming of the son of man in the rapture. Not even the son knew, not even the angels knew. He did not exercise divine knowledge. Philippians 2 again. So this thing that Jesus was undergoing at this time, what in the penalty for dealing with, to, to pay for our sins, not only involved, now y'all listen so you'll get it, not only involved the death of Jesus on the cross, that is the shedding of his blood, because when that body died, the blood was shed. By the shedding of blood, we have what? The remission of sin. But remember what Jesus said to John the Baptist when Jesus was baptized by John and John did not want to baptize Jesus. What did Jesus say? It is necessary that we fulfill all righteousness in every respect. Go back and look at the teaching that I did on that. I believe it's what is Matthew chapter what three or something like that. In every respect, Jesus had to identify with those he was dying for. He had to identify with us in totality, not only on the cross, because on the cross died shedding the blood for our sin. Therefore, this takes away our sin. But remember this, we are sinners separated from God. What did Paul say? Dead in sin and separated from God. Jesus had to share that experience. This was an experience that Jesus never had in his life. All Jesus's life, he, he had a connection with God. He had a spiritual connection with the Father. He always was aware of that connection that he had with God, his Father, all the days of his life. So Jesus had a connection with God that we that none of us have, okay? We only share this in a minute way because of what Jesus has provided for us. But Jesus had the fullness of this in a way that no man had. Why? He was a sinless son. He was the son of God. He was the Messiah. So Jesus had this continual spiritual connection with the father all the time. When he entered into the garden of Gethsemane, all of a sudden he noticed that this connection with God was severed. It was gone. And that's why he began to say, oh, what is, he's, it's like, 
what is happening to me? I'm, and he began, know that he said, I am beginning. That's why those verbs are in the present tense. I'm, he began, he began to be deeply depressed and grieved. It's the, the connection that Jesus enjoyed with the father was so natural to him that he felt like he was actually going to die at that moment. Notice what the verse said in verse number 38. I, my soul is deeply grieved. You are so spiritually struck that it feels like what Jesus to the point of death. It feels like I'm about to die right now. So Jesus was struck so hard from that spiritual separation from the father, one that he had never experienced in his life, that it's knocked him off his feet. He didn't know it was just uh, unimaginable to him not to have that connection with God. Why? Here's my point again. So let me drive it home before I preach too much. The whole point is he had to take on everything as we are separated from God because of our sin. Jesus had to take on that separation. That separation, Jesus was not prepared to experience. He wasn't prepared to go through that. So when it hit him in the garden of Gethsemane, he thought he was about to die. And that's when being unprepared for this, not desiring, not desiring to be spiritually separated from God, willing, willing to die on the cross. That was not a problem, but he did not want that spiritual separation. He began to pray and said, Father, if it is possible, take this cup, this what I'm experiencing at the moment, this spiritual separation in my soul, take that, which me and you, dad, me and you ain't never been separated like this. I cannot bear this. I cannot go and do what I need to do. Please don't separate me from, from you this way. And that's what my Lord was pleading to God. Don't do this, please, Father. But then he said, nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. He acquiesced to the will of the Father. So all I'm trying to say is this, to understand the event. Do not make the greatest common mistake that most, 99% of people make, that Jesus was praying not to die and go to the cross. Wrong wrong, wrong. Everything was about going to the cross with Jesus. Every, he kept telling them from the moment of Peter's confession, everything was about that. Notice the very context here. When he walked into the garden of Gethsemane, boom, it hit him. And he said, whoa, my soul is deeply grieved. In other words, what in the world is going on? I feel like I'm about to die. And if he died in the garden, he can't go to the cross. So you can understand him being confused and grieved because it was, it was kept from him. 
What? That he would be spiritually separated from the father. Not only will he give his body as a sacrifice for sin, he will give that spiritual unity in the sense of the unity that he had as a man, okay? Not that he participated in the divine being. I don't want to get into all of that. He is still God, but nevertheless, that spiritual oneness that he had with the father as a man was broken in the garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus pleaded for that to be taken away from him. He wanted to be reunited spiritually again. And that's what he prayed three times in prayer with. But now let's go on. So he prayed the hour. He came back and notice when he came back, he found them all sleeping. And when he addressed them, notice how he addressed Peter by name. And he said, and said to Peter, could not all of you keep watch for me one hour? And why did he bring Peter up by name? Notice, what did Peter say? Though all may stumble because of you, they will. I won't. He's showing Peter, you are just as weak as the rest of them, even though you thought so much of yourself. But look at you just like them. Another point that I want to bring about in this, may I make a spiritual observation as Jesus is undergoing this experience, how they are all asleep. Let me just simply say it like I think about it. Be careful that as the Lord returns, that we don't be found asleep. What was the final warning of chapters 25, 24 and 25, but in chapter 25? Be ready, be ready, be ready, be ready. Like the virgins, what? Come in the middle of the night, be ready. Do not fall asleep. Don't let the Lord catch you unprepared. And it seemed to suggest to me, as the Lord came back and found his disciples asleep, so he will return in the air, the rapture. And guess what? He will find many of us in the church asleep. And that's all I'll say about that. But nevertheless, what? And then Jesus makes the statement. He gives us a principal point. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Which speaks about our ongoing battle, even though we are saved. What? As Paul talks about in the book of Galatians, there is a battle between flesh and spirit. Our spirit is willing to do what is good. Our spirit is willing to make the sacrifice. Our spirit is willing to be obedient to Christ in all things. But we always find ourselves at war with our sinful nature. That is the flesh and the flesh oftentimes win. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so what happened? Jesus returned back into prayer. We know that Jesus prayed for three hours and praying back to prayer for the second time. He came back once again. What were they doing? Sleeping once again. He went back again for the third time, prayed another hour. He came back. And this time he just, he, he didn't try to worry about it. He just told him, wake up. Why? He says, for what? Are you still sleeping? The hour is at hand. The one who is betraying me is here. And that means Jesus was aware that Judas had now come into Gethsemane. What is also interesting to understand is, watch this. How did Judas know where they were? 
because Jesus would retire to this place as a commonplace with his disciples. In other words, it was nothing new. So Judas would automatically know because what? He'd been there before when Jesus would come there. Judas would know exactly where Jesus was. So he knew exactly where to lead those soldiers. He knew to lead them to Gethsemane. But anyway, so Jesus said, son of man, and I like how he said it, is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Judas was now present along with the group of soldiers. Get up, let us be going. Our betrayer is at hand. Again, this final statement simply buttresses. It simply goes to emphasize and prove to you my point. The betrayer is at hand. Get up and let us be going. Jesus knew that once he got up and went with Judas, this would start the process that would lead to his crucifixion. Again, he never ran away from the crucifixion. What Jesus wanted to avoid was that spirit, that human spirit separation from God the Father. Not his divine spirit, the human spirit, that human tie-in of companionship. That's what Jesus prayed against in the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, all right, enough of that. We've gone long enough, we're gonna stop right there. So join me next time. So what did we do? We basically talked about the time when Jesus prepared for the Passover and the events to, in some of the issues of the Passover, like the assigning of bread and well at the drinking of the cup, to the which Jesus gave new symbols or new meaning to those symbols. It's bread being the body and the cup, talking about the blood of the new covenant and how Judas was ready and went through the things to uh, betray Jesus to the religious leaders. How the, he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. What was important about the 30 pieces of silver? Why the leaders did not want to uh, get Jesus. They wanted to kill him, but not during the feast time because they didn't want to start a riot. But Jesus sprang the trap when he told Judas, go ahead on. What you got set in your mind to do, go and do quickly. And therefore, Jesus set in motion Judas's actions that would lead to his crucifixion during the Passover season at the very time when the leaders did not want to kill Jesus. But nevertheless, it was the divine time and the divine plan for, for Jesus to be betrayed unto death and the Lamb of God to be crucified at God's timetable. So join me next time as we complete the end of chapter 26 and we get into Jesus's arrest, Peter's denial, and prepare for the crucifixion. See you next time.